Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. Also the host of this show, Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we raid the journalism refrigerator. We're taking out some stories that by now are a few days old, heating them up, serving them up, piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. We begin with a strange and striking coincidence. In a couple of weeks, July 27th, we will be celebrating the one-year anniversary of not one, but two high-stakes legal proceedings, the January 6th Committee in the United States and the Vatican's Trial of the Century. We'll try to take a look at what these two things may actually have in common. Second, a retiring pope? I mean, despite recent speculation that Pope Francis might be getting ready to stand down, he's certainly not acting like it. We will go through the most recent items Pope Francis has added to his to-do list. Third, and another opening to women. Pope Francis has announced his intention to name two women to the ultra-powerful panel in the Vatican that recommends new bishops around the world. We'll explain why that matters. And then finally, the death of a giant. With the loss last Monday of Cardinal Claudio Umez of Brazil, the church in Latin America, for that matter, the global church, has lost one of the titans of the 20th and early 21st century, we will take a look at his legacy. All that and more is waiting for you this week on Last Week in the Church, so please, please stick around. All right, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Happy July 12th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Hope you are having a great summer. We begin this week with an anniversary that is coming up fairly quickly. It'll be about, oh, two weeks from tomorrow, actually. And the date is July 27th. Now, the significance of July 27th is that on that date in 2021, meaning a year ago, the very first public hearings were conducted in two different procedures. One, the January 6th committee in the United States House of Representatives looking at the violence at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th after the 2020 elections in the United States. And also, the Vatican's trial of the century, this kind of mega trial that involves 10 separate defendants, including for the very first time a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, and a handful of corporate entities who have been charged with various forms of financial crime. Fraud, corruption, embezzlement, misappropriation, all kinds of different things. Most of it related to a spectacularly failed $400 million land deal the Vatican attempted to pull off in London. Now, in most ways, these two procedures could not be more different, okay? First of all, let's begin with the fact that the July 6th hearings in the United States House are a quintessentially political exercise. This committee was created on what amounts to a strict party line vote in the U.S. House. That is, Democrats were all in favor of it. Republicans were almost compactly against it. The membership of the committee is stacked in favor of Democrats. Only two Republicans have agreed to serve. 
both of them have been censured by the Republican National Committee for doing so. And the truth of it is, should Republicans regain control of the House in midterm elections this fall, this committee will be first on the chopping block, I promise you. So it is in that sense. And of course, it's not a trial, right? It's not in the strict sense. It's not a legal proceeding. Although the goal of the committee is to determine if there are legal charges that can be recommended to the U.S. Justice Department against people they believe to have been responsible for that January 6th insurrection. And of course, the most prominent target of the investigation would be former President Donald Trump. But, the, you know, they do not have the power in and of themselves to bring legal charges. They can't send anybody to jail on their own initiative. The Vatican trial, on the other hand, is, strictly speaking, a legal rather than a political process. It is being overseen by the Vatican's own civil tribunal, led by a lay judge, Giuseppe Pignantoni, appointed as the chief justice by Pope Francis. People have actually been charged with crimes and, in theory, could face either fines or jail terms if they are convicted of the crimes with which they have been charged. Further, it's not really a political process in the strict sense because the truth of it is financial reform is one of the few issues in the life of the Catholic Church that left and right, broadly speaking, basically agree upon. It's not really a liberal conservative issue. The idea that people shouldn't be stealing the church blind is something that, you know, whether you are the furthest out liberal Catholic or the most knuckle-dragging troglodyte conservative Catholic, you know, it's something that both sides basically would share, right? Now that said, there are nevertheless three interesting parallels here. First, both in the case of the January 6th hearings and also the Vatican trial of the century, these are quintessentially inside the beltway stories. That is, Insiders are hanging with bated breath on every new twist and turn in these things. Outsiders really aren't. For instance, the January 6th committee recently scheduled a hearing in prime time in an effort to galvanize a mass audience. They held it at 8 p.m. Eastern time in the United States. Now, ratings tell us that this hearing drew an audience of about 20 million people. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at, but it was carried on every major network in America. If you add up the audiences for the evening news on every major network in America, it comes to about 20 million. In other words, nobody tuned in who wouldn't have otherwise tuned in to watch the news that night, no matter what was going on. Further, let's take CBS as an example. The week prior to the live broadcast of this hearing, CBS had aired a rerun of the sitcom Young Sheldon. That rerun actually had higher ratings than the live broadcast of the January 6th committee hearing. Moral of the story here is most Americans aren't exactly paying close attention to all of this. Same thing with the Vatican trial of the century. The Vatican trial recently held its 24th hearing. And the way these things work is there is a small press pool that gets to go into the courtroom when these hearings are going on. And then they come back and brief the rest of the press corps, who then go off and write their stories or do their broadcasts. Now, by this stage, the truth of it is, 
most reporters aren't even attending those briefings. Those who do will do very brief kind of duty stories. But what traffic tells us, and I can certainly speak for Crux in this regard, our traffic numbers tell us that of all the stories we have done in the Pope Francis era, public interest in this trial finishes pretty near the bottom of the list, to be honest, in terms of what people actually care about. And so that's point one. Both of these procedures, however important they may be, right? And they are critically important. One speaks, the January 6th committee, speaks to whether or not the U.S. Constitution was knowingly subverted by people charged with upholding it. The trial, the Vatican trial speaks, to whether people who were charged with managing the financial resources of the Vatican knowingly abused that authority for personal interest. Those are important questions. However, the procedures themselves have failed to generate, you know, a groundswell of public interest. Second, why is that? Why aren't people paying attention? Well, because in both cases, I suspect, it's because most people think they already know the big picture answer. I mean, if the question is, did Donald Trump incite the violence on January 6th? Don't you think most Americans would say, of course? And then the debate would simply be whether he was right in doing so, right? Trump supporters would say, well, there was this huge steal going on, like something had to be done. Trump critics would say, well, no, he was in denial about losing the election, and this was just a desperate man lashing out. But in any event, nobody questions the fundamental premise. So even if this committee comes up with a smoking gun, you know, proving that, I don't know, Trump ordered the, you know, these right-wing militias into action, would it really change most people's opinion? Similarly, in the Vatican trial, you ask most Catholics, is there financial corruption in the Vatican? <laughs> you know, they're going to say, is water wet? Is the sky blue? Does the sun come up in the morning? Yeah, we kind of feel like we already know that. So in neither case is there a great reveal, I think, that is likely to sort of take people off guard and make them sit up and pay attention. And the third point, the third commonality between these two procedures, is that many people, I think, have drawn the conclusion that whatever else is going on here, it isn't exclusively about getting to the truth or the administration of justice. In the case of the January 6th committee, I think, certainly most Republicans believe this is a political exercise led by the Democrats and that their real goal is just to try to get in the way of Donald Trump making another run in 2024 or acting as a kind of spectral presence in American politics. With the Vatican trial, it has not escaped anybody's attention that the Pope's top aides, the most senior people in Pope Francis's power structure, all of whom approved the deal at the heart of this trial at every stage, and not just orally, but in writing. None of them have been indicted or even treated as suspects, which, you know, leads to the conclusion that what's really going on here is the attempt to find fall guys, or fall women, as the case may be, for the failures of people higher up in the food chain. Fair or not, I think those are fairly common perceptions, and Therefore, if you think what's going on here in both cases is basically political theater, that is, actors with assigned roles leading to predetermined conclusions, it's no wonder that a lot of people just aren't paying attention.
maybe Young Sheldon honestly is the better choice if you think this is nothing more than theater. Myself, I'd rather be watching baseball, but, you know, what are you going to do? All right. Secondly, a retiring pope? I mean, come on. We have talked on this show before about how in recent weeks there has been some speculation that Pope Francis might be getting ready to step down. This has been fueled both by his ongoing health issues, problems in his right knee that have restricted him to the use of a wheelchair and a cane, that coupled with the fact that he called a consistory to create new cardinals in late August, which is an unusual date, and at the same time said he was going to go to L'Aquila in central Italy, which is where the tomb of Pope Celestine V is located, the last pope to resign the papacy voluntarily before Benedict XVI. Now, in a recent interview with the Reuters news agency, Pope Francis utterly rejected this out of hand. He said, look, the day may come when I don't feel I can do this anymore, but that's not today. And he said, you know, it's never entered my mind to quit. Now, that probably by itself should have been enough to make all this speculation go away. But if you need more, let us consider what has been floated in terms of upcoming papal activity in the next little while. First of all, the Pope's foreign minister, British Archbishop Paul Gallagher, recently told Italy's main news broadcaster, Rayuno, that the Pope still is trying to figure out a way to visit Kiev uh, in Ukraine and that he might do so in August. He said, I wouldn't rule that out. But it's possible. He said, we'll see what happens when the Pope gets back from Canada. Of course, Pope Francis is going to Canada July 24th through the 30th. Now, the Pope has made it clear, also in that Reuters interview, that he would prefer a sequence here. He would like to go to Moscow first to meet Putin and then go to Kiev to meet Zelensky. This in keeping with the Vatican's attempt to seem super partis, right? Kind of above the fray, not taking sides. And it's not at all clear that he would be welcome in Moscow. But nevertheless, the point is, his top aides are continuing to dangle the possibility that he might make a trip to Ukraine in August. And it's entirely possible that by doing so, they're trying to light a fire under Moscow saying, look, Pope's going to Kiev, wants to go to Kiev regardless. Now, if you guys want the opportunity to seem like statesmen, and to seem like you're engaged in conversation with the international community, it would be in your self-interest to make it possible for him to come to Moscow first because he would like to do that. In other words, there may be some diplomatic brinkmanship going on here, but in any event, this is not the behavior of a pope who is getting ready to quit. Now, the Vatican has also never taken off the table what had been rumored, which is the possibility of a trip to Kazakhstan in September, where Pope Francis might have the opportunity to meet Patriarch Kirill, head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, if he does go to Moscow, he would presumably meet Kirill there, in which case the Kazakhstan thing would not be necessary. But the point is, no one has ever officially ruled it out. And just recently, the Vatican confirmed two trips inside Italy for late September. On September 24th, Pope Francis will be going to Assisi, the home of St. Francis, his namesake, for the sixth time during the course of his papacy. He will be there to preside over a meeting of a group called the Economy of Francis. It's a group of young business people and academics and 
influencers and activists who were dedicated to trying to re-envision the global economy through the lens of Francis of Assisi. And then on September 25th, Pope Francis will be going to Matera in the Basilicata region, far south in Italy, to preside over a Eucharistic Congress. Now, again, you know, make of all this what you will. All I will say is this is not the behavior of a pope who is winding down. This is instead the behavior of a pope who very much seems full steam ahead. All right, third up this week, Pope Francis's latest opening to women. Now, to try to put this in slightly oversimplified terms, there has been a debate over women in the Catholic Church for a long time. In its present form, it really dates from the 1970s. This was when many other Christian denominations began ordaining female clergy. You may remember the Episcopal Church of the United States, for instance, did so in 1976. And there was some feeling that that was going to eventually lead to the Catholic Church doing the same thing. That led to a very strong push for women's ordination inside the Catholic Church. And even though Pope Paul VI said no in a document called Inter Intersignores, that push lasted until the John Paul years. John Paul brought out Ordinatio Sacerdotalis in the 90s, basically saying a firm no to the ordination of women. And that is a no, by the way, that has been repeated by every subsequent pope, including Pope Francis. So what you really have now, I think, in terms of the debate on the women's question in the Catholic Church, you still have some on the left who will say that nothing short of the ordination of women to both the diaconate and the priesthood, and eventually, I suppose, as bishops, nothing short of that would be adequate in terms of proving that the church has turned over a new leaf. On the other side of the debate, you have conservatives who say, no, never in a million years. Women's ordination is completely impossible. It would contradict the design of Christ for the church. In the middle, I think what you have are a, a huge clump of people who would say something like, well, look, there's no point arguing about women's ordination right now because for the moment it's off the table. We don't know what the future may bring, but for right now, it's clearly not going to happen. However, the church has always said that sacramental ordination is not the only pathway to power and influence in the church. So let's try to empower women in all the ways that don't require a Roman collar. And that is basically the strategy that Pope Francis has adopted from the very beginning. I mean, consider that over the course of his papacy, he has named, for instance, a woman, Sister Raffaella Petrini, as the secretary of the Vatican city-state, the number two position in the government of the Vatican city-state, which has always been considered one of the most powerful positions in the Vatican. Trivia footnote, do you know who actually held that job before Petrini? I mean, there were a couple people in between, but one of her predecessors in this job, Italian Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, who has gone on to become the premier, the preeminent, the par excellence thorn in the side of Pope Francis. No indication Sister Petrini intends to follow that example. Pope Francis has also named Sister Natalie Beckwart as a secretary in the Synod for Bishops. She'll be the first voting female member of the Synod the next time it meets. And he has also named Sister Alessandra Smirilli as the secretary of his dicastery for integral human development. 
he named Italian laywoman Barbara Giotta to run the very wealthy and important Vatican museums and on and on. His most recent gambit in this regard, and again, this is something that comes out of the Reuters interview, is that he now intends to name two women to the new dicastery for bishops, used to be called the Congregation for Bishops. But in any event, it's the panel in Rome that makes recommendations to the Pope about who should become bishops around the world. Now, he did not identify who these two women are, nor did he say when he intends to name them. But you have to imagine that if he said this in an interview, probably the planning is fairly far along. Here's why this matters. You can make a really good case. And when I say that, what I mean is I have made the case that there is nothing more important a pope does in terms of shaping culture in the Catholic Church than naming bishops. It's probably the most important prerogative that any pope has at his disposal. And bear in mind, it is a relatively recent vision, vintage. I mean, in 1831, when Pope Gregory XVI was elected, there were 646 Catholic bishops in the world. 555 of them had been named by the state not by the Pope, by monarchs and empires. And this was a result of deals the Vatican had made over the centuries. Today, there are more than 5,000 bishops in the Catholic world, and virtually all of them have been named directly by the Pope. The re-centralization of power in Rome to name bishops has probably been the single most important development in the papacy in the last 200 years. And Pope Francis has wielded that to great effect to name bishops around the world that are cut from his own cloth. The fact, therefore, that he is naming two women to this panel is extremely important because it's probably the most important function any pope will ever play. Now, you know, it remains to be seen who these women will be, how consequential they will be, but the mere fact that there will be women on this panel is nevertheless of significance and does suggest that there will be a broader sense of what? Sensibilities, perspectives, experiences brought to bear on the consideration of who ought to be chosen to lead the church for the next generation. Regardless of how it plays out, it is a significant moment. Now, critics will say it's too little too late, it's tokenism. You know, on the other side, critics from a more conservative disposition will say, you know, this is a violation of the notion of apostolic succession and that Christ invested power in the church in the hands of the clerical ranks. That debate will go on, but in any event, it is a consequential moment and one worth thinking about. All right, finally this week, the death of a giant. Cardinal Claudio Umes of Brazil died on Monday at the age of 87. Umes had been a giant of the Latin American church for decades, former Archbishop of Sao Paulo in Brazil, from 2006 to 2010, he was the prefect of the Congregation for Clergy here in Rome, therefore a very senior Vatican official. He was one of the architects of the election of Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio of Argentina to the papacy as Pope Francis in 2013. And when Pope Francis decided to call a synod of bishops for the Amazon, Ulmez was in some ways the architect of the design of that synod and also the implementation of the Synod after the fact. 
Umez and Bergoglio were, by all accounts, very close friends. And in fact, Bergoglio attributed to Cardinal Umez the choice of his name as pope. He's told, he told the story shortly after his election that inside the conclave, when votes began to mount in his favor, Cardinal Lumez, who was sitting near to him, was one who was encouraging him. When he crossed the two-thirds threshold, that is, had enough votes to become pope, he said that Lumez was the first guy to leap up, to embrace him, to kiss him. And then he said something that Francis said he has never forgotten, which is Lumez's charge was, do not forget the poor. Do not forget the poor. And Francis said it was that that led him to choose the name of Pope Francis. And in many ways, gave the direction to his papacy that we have all watched play out in real time over the last almost decade now. Gomez was a legendary figure. He was always seen as a kind of moderate in Catholic life, very much a social justice bishop, had a particular concern for the Amazon region, the indigenous persons of the Amazon region, the environmental concerns of the Amazon region. More broadly than that, would be seen as somebody who was a supporter of a kind of moderate pastoral vision of church leadership and how the church ought to adapt to the challenges of, of a changing era. And therefore, of course, would have been seen as a great sustainer, a great ally, a great friend of the Francis papacy. Now, you know, that legacy will be debated. You know, not everybody, of course, is in a full, upright, and locked position in support of everything Pope Francis has said or done. There is a kind of reservoir of criticism out there. And to the extent that Umez is perceived as partly responsible for the course this papacy has taken, he will have his critics too, obviously. However, I can at least say this. During that period from 2006 to 2010, when Umez was here in Rome as prefect of the Congregation for Clergy, I had a good friend who worked in clergy at that time. And so I got to know Umez a bit. And I can just say this. You know, make what you will of his theological convictions, the choices he made over the course of his career, which are always imminently debatable. But I've rarely met somebody who struck me as kinder, gentler, more pastoral, just really a nice guy. And in the world of the Vatican, that's not something you can always take for granted. So I will remember him in those terms. Here's one other quick thought about the Umez legacy. Umez was made a cardinal by St. John Paul II, as, by the way, was Bergoglio, who went on to become Pope Francis, as was Oscar Rodriguez Maradiaga of Honduras, probably the greatest Latin American ally of this papacy, as were Walter Casper and Carl Lehmann of Germany, Carlo Maria Martini of Italy, Godfrey Danales of Belgium, and on and on, many of the great liberal lions of the College of Cardinals, who were part of the infrastructure that led to the election of Pope Francis in 2013, all got their red hats from John Paul. So for all those who want to make the case that Pope Francis represents a kind of reversal, a rollback, an abandonment, a repeal of the John Paul II papacy, 
Make that argument by all means, but I would simply point out that on the basis of his cardinal's appointments, you could make an equal and opposite argument that what we are watching right now under Pope Francis reflects an unfolding, not a repeal, of John Paul's legacy because all of its architects were guys that he put in positions of leadership, that he set up to be leading the church today as we speak. If nothing else, some interesting food for thought. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for being with us, as ever. We'll be back here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel, so don't miss it. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay cool, and we will talk to you again soon.